This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Saver, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have a classic episode for you about artificial flavorings. Yes. And this is, uh, can we call it an oldie but a goodie? I <laughs> sure. <an> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's from, it originally aired in um, uh, February of 2018. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Um, and interestingly enough, I love it. I love it when you listeners ask me these questions as if it's very important to you. But I believe I mentioned in this episode that artificial flavoring is one of the wide categories of food that I kind of cheat and say I don't like. Oh, five things, right, but right. One of them uh-huh. is artificial flavors, fruit, <laughs> artificial flavors. Right. In and I've had a couple of listeners write in with follow-up questions about Ooh, that. Yeah. And I'm only too happy to go into it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't like fruit artificial flavoring. And I actually don't. I actually think I might, because one of the other ones is caramel. Um, and I actually think my bigger problem might be caramel or whatever like artificial flavoring. flavoring yeah which is also i think part of the dr pepper thing oh. which i also i despise more than anything i can't put into words how much i hate dr pepper um, <laughs> cheers I, to you <laughs> dr pepper wow i i i don't despise flavor uh, usually if i dislike a food it's a texture issue more than a flavor yeah. issue um there are a couple of foods like i think i talk about in the chestnuts episode which i forgot that we did um until annie pointed <laughs> it out to me I, I put it on the schedule for us to do an episode about and she was like nah nah dude <laughs> but, we did uh, do that it's a very sad story <laughs> <laughs> um but but no they they're, they're yeah like 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 chestnuts I dislike because they taste a little bit too rich to me. But even that mm. I'm kind of getting over. I don't understand <laughs> this <laughs> severe aversion that you have. I wish I could like this. It's a physical, like my whole body is like, no. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah, no, it like makes you angry. It does. I'm getting a little heated talking about it. Um. But I do, it's funny because it is one of those things I do like talking about. I really appreciate when you listeners are like, <laughs> I'm just like a scientist taking notes. Like, hey, like, well, <laughs> just curious. 
Because there are some I'm sure I'm fine with. I, I've definitely had some and I'm, you know, just okay. But, and a lot of it is more, it's not the Dr. Pepper level of hate. It's just like, I would never, I would rather not eat it. I yeah. would never choose to eat it. Yeah. I will not seek it out. Okay. If someone offers it to me, I will say no. Yeah. But it's not like that level, that visceral level. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting. I don't I don't know what's going on either. And that's one of the things that fascinates me about humans in general is why they like what they like and why they don't like <laughs> what they don't like. Yeah, it's um well, you know, we are we are all our own little little mysteries just just booping around the universe, being mysterious to ourselves as well. That's You're right. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> We are all our own little mysteries. (laughs) Um, But this one, this one, a lot of mysteries and a lot of interesting historical taste facts. I just thought about how people think like bananas should taste, for instance. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, no, and, and right, right. This was a really fun one in terms of science. Um, I, I get really riled up a few times in it. Uh, as as always, we did a super brief like, oh man, has there been any wacky news about artificial flavoring? Um, and and people are still mad that it's artificial, and that's mm-hmm. you know, and you know, again, we're <laughs> see above re. We're all our own mysteries, and if <laughs> yeah. I don't personally yeah. see, scientifically speaking, a reason to be that angry about it. Well, I only see it in terms of my friends tricking me into drinking a, a drink <laughs> that I despise. But yes, yeah, scientifically, <laughs> I'm generally going. <laughs> but you're not you're not like out there like lobbying against Dr. Pepper. You're like no one should drink Dr. Pepper. You're not like. Set it on fire. Are you now like that set you it? Said that. <laughs> <laughs> like, why have I never thought of? No, no. I want people to like what they like. Most, most everyone I know loves it. Um, like, true. That's not even an exaggeration. I'm pretty sure most everyone I know loves it. Um, so I, I would never deprive someone just because I have an issue that's very personal. There's no science involved <laughs> other than my example study of one. <laughs> yeah. But yes, yes, you are correct. Like what you like. <laughs> Go forth. Go forth. Go forth and drink <laughs> this thing that Annie viscerally despises. I don't know how it's turned into this. I think we're going to get a note from our advertisers, <laughs> <laughs> our ad people. No longer a sponsor. No longer. For, for, for the no. record, I do love Dr. Pepper. So I. I... <laughs> Oh, it's because I always do this. I just have strong opinions. Uh, but alas, the episode is not about <laughs> this one specific product. Uh, it's not. It's not. We've gone on quite a long time now about <laughs> something. This, this episode, right, is not about. So uh, so let us get into that episode and uh, let former Annie and Lauren take it away. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Annie Rees. And today we're talking about artificial flavor. That's right. I would say this is like Food Stuff's throwback episode. Oh, it's we reference essentially everything we've ever talked about. Yes, and future episodes that we are going to talk about. So we, we gave ourselves so much homework. <laughs> we really did. And you as well. You're welcome. Yay! Okay, so let's start out with What the heck are these things, Lauren? Oh, well, artificial flavors are mixtures of chemical compounds that mimic the flavor and or scent of certain foods, sometimes because they're the same compounds that naturally appear in those foods. Right. And a quick note here, the FDA has no legal definition of natural when it comes to food in the United States. Um, Marketers are allowed to use that term willy-nilly as long as the product doesn't contain any added colors, synthetic substances, or, yep, artificial flavors. However, apart from knowing those things aren't in there, you don't really know what is in there when it says natural. Yeah. They do have a definition for flavor, that whose significant function in food is flavoring rather than nutritional. A natural flavor 
is one that comes from a plant or animal. But that can include bacteria and yeast. An artificial flavor is one that's produced in a lab via chemical and or mechanical processes. Um, and note that an artificial flavor and a natural flavor can be molecularly identical. Yep. It's just how you got that compound. Mm-hmm. So artificial flavors show up in a lot of things. Uh, processed food and drinks, you know, your ramen and your soda pop and weird chips and dessert-themed vodka. Um, as of 2011, 90% of Americans' grocery purchases contained added flavors. Whoa. But artificial flavors are also in cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, hygiene products, you know, lip balm to cough syrup to toothpaste to vitamins to any kind of pill that's given a sweet outer coating to help that medicine go down. That medicine, man. The folks who work in this industry are called flavor chemists or flavorists, and their jobs are not easy. Only about 500 are certified by the Society of Flavor Chemists Worldwide. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And their job is not easy because, okay, like the compounds that make, say, a strawberry smell and taste like a strawberry are a lot of compounds, and they're all working together in these strange and ephemeral ways. And that's because the way that we smell and taste things is complicated. The average adult has about 10,000 taste buds. Not just on your tongue, by the way. A few are spread throughout the rest of your oral cavity. And these are nerve endings that are triggered to send signals to your brain when they interact with specific types of molecules. These cells give you all kinds of levels of sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and savory, sometimes called umami. Right. And then you've got other nerve cells throughout your oral and nasal cavities that detect molecules that give us a sense of chemical heat and cooling and tingling, uh, you know, spicy hot or minty or menthol-y, stuff like that. Those same cells also detect astringency. Uh, that's what tells your brain that lemons or, or dry wines taste not just sour, but like physically puckery. Right. Yeah. And then you've got olfaction or scent. Uh, nerves in your nasal cavity alert your brain when they interact with more other different molecules, both from outside and inside your mouth. For strawberries, for example, researchers have isolated over 300 compounds that affect our experience of smell and taste. For tomatoes, it's over 400. Wow. Also, even once you do isolate a bunch of these compounds, it's not really all that useful unless you can figure out a way to produce them cheaply and in large quantities. In a lot of cases, we don't know how the plants make these compounds to begin with. Yeah. So figuring out a way to produce them is hard. It's very difficult, yes. And it is a big industry. One market estimate from Leffingwell & Associates put the total flavor and fragrance industry sales for 2016 at $24 billion. And that's not like consumer purchases. That's sales straight from the companies that produce these flavor and scent compounds to other companies that put them in stuff. That is a hefty, a hefty number, a hefty sum. My favorite thing about artificial flavors um, that I kind of did, never thought about is that in some cases it's like you're tasting the past. And speaking of the past, let's talk about history. Oh, but first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. 
Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. All right. So the very first iteration of artificial flavors were oils made from extracted fragrances and flavors in ancient Egypt. Avicenna, or Ibn Sina, the Persian physician and philosopher, took this a step further in the 11th century. He realized that you could distill oils by steaming the plant to get the oil, whatever you're trying to get, and then let it condense back to a liquid, sort of like what you would do with alcohol. This innovation opened the doors for a lot more flavors and scents. Mm -hmm. The first historical records we have of artificial flavorings come out of the mid-19th century. The Crystal Palace Exhibition, London, 1851. All kinds of scientific and technological advances on display for the public, ah. (laughs) including artificially flavored candies for the sampling in pineapple, apple, pear, and grape flavors. With industrialization and full swing, all of these flavors were compounds discovered as accidental byproducts in other scientific endeavors and synthesized in labs. Similarly to artificial sweeteners, scientists doing other experiments maybe get a whiff of something fruity, and they thought to themselves, hmm, I bet we could use this to flavor things. And these first artificial flavors were generally single chemicals diluted with alcohol. Also similar to artificial sweeteners, these flavors came from things you might not suspect. (laughs) Like, quote, substances of intensely disgusting odor. (laughs) Hmm. Huh. Yeah. And like I said about tasting a bit of the past thing, we're going to be talking about some artificial flavors that just don't taste like what they claim to be imitating. And one is artificial cherry. Oh, yeah. The cherry flavoring found in most sodas and candies is more reminiscent of wild cherries or cherry liqueur. And that's because when it was first derived, it was this ester method. And the chemical behind cheap artificial cherry is benzaldehyde, which is also used in almond oil. I was reading about this in an interview with artificial flavoring expert Nadia Berenstein, and she described it as an heirloom or an heritage flavor, artificial wow. flavor, which I kind of love. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. That's that's why it doesn't taste at all like, okay. Yeah. I totally get the almond thing. Uh, as we mentioned in our vanilla episode, vanillin, the compound behind vanilla's flavor, was isolated in 1858 by Nicolas Theodore Gobley. Um, it was the first artificial flavor that was derived from the actual ingredient it was meant to mimic. Almost two decades later, in 1874, a pair of German scientists by the names of Ferdinand Tienmann and Wilhelm Harman used pine tree bark to synthesize vanillin. The very next year, 
they opened the world's first vanillin factory so that the popular flavor was no longer going to empty your bank account. We talked about that a lot in the vanilla episode. Yeah. Should you like to listen to that if you haven't already. By the time this factory opened, you could get all kinds of artificial fruit flavors. According to one writer in 1864, artificial essences of nearly every fruit are made, some of which are absolutely perfect in their resemblance to the real fruit essence, while others leave a great deal to the imagination. <laughs> That's one of those kind of like backhanded compliment insult things. Yeah. yeah. You think it's going well right up until the, ooh, yeah, and then they ouch. In the 1860s, a decade before bananas were available in the U.S., people could purchase artificially banana-flavored candies. They were derived from a compound found in the original commercialized banana, Gomichel, which is why we call it fake banana. Or this seems to be the general consensus, but not totally agreed upon in the scientific community. Yeah, one researcher who looked into it found no particular evidence that artificial banana flavoring came directly from the Gros Michel, but he did find that the Gros Michel variety, which you can still get from a few specialty growers in places like Hawaii, has a flavor that's sweeter and more flat or, or simple than today's Cavendish banana. And this is scientific. Uh, gas chromatography showed fewer known flavor and or scent compounds in the Gros Michel. So, compared with the Cavendish banana, Gros Michel bananas taste sort of artificial. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this brings us to juicy fruit. What kind of fruit is juicy fruit, by the way? No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what juicy fruit is, it's the Wrigley's fruit gum that uh, is in yellow package, or it was when I was a kid, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1893, this is when it debuted. The interesting thing here is it's got no clear flavor, and when you taste it, you're like, yeah, that's juicy fruit, but <laughs> you don't know what fruit is the juicy one we are discussing. <laughs> it's not specified. And juicy fruit went all the way with it, going so far as to adopt this slogan in the 1940s, the gum with the fascinating artificial flavor. Mm. Well, they embraced it. <laughs> <laughs> As the century drew to a close, you could find so many artificial fruit flavors. The U.S., Canada, France, Britain, and Germany used them in all sorts of things, like candy, jams, or drugstore soda. They seemed to be doing a pretty decent job at the flavor part, too, when a Massachusetts Board of Health inspector came asking around about these things in the 1870s, what's going on here? A soda vendor told him, Customers cannot distinguish the artificial from the true fruit flavors. However, not everybody agreed, including Charles Soules, the author of a 1888 soda and beverage handbook that included this note, no amount of chemical skill can imitate the fine flavors of many fruits. I like that quote. Yeah, I would Just agree. Just because it has a lot of Fs in it. <laughs> <laughs> then... <laughs> We get to the U.S. Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, thanks in part to Heinz. That Heinz? Yes, that Heinz. Ke ketchup Heinz? Absolutely, and we have a ketchup episode in the works, and he is fascinating. So look for that. <laughs> look for that in an upcoming episode. There's all this concern about artificial flavors being part of the problem of masking the problem specifically of, ah. like, rotting food or, or yeah, especially rotting food. Yeah, kind of like non-food, food ingredients. Yeah, basically tricking you into eating something that you weren't eating. Yeah. Uh, after President Roosevelt um, passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, anything containing imitation, in quotes, flavors had to be labeled as such. This, the codified differentiation between genuine and imitation foods was the first statutory distinction in the U.S. If the flavor came from the actual thing, it was genuine. If it was synthetically derived, then it was imitation. Artificial flavor manufacturers smarted a bit at this. I can imagine. Um, not the law necessarily, but the fact that they were being called impure or dangerous. The Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association launched a campaign in 1913 to improve their negative image and what they viewed as an unfair association with, quote, adulterators, food poisoners, and drug dopesters. Ah. Mm-hmm. Some, like chemist Alois von Isaacovics, believed the law improved sales and that synthetics could be better 
than the real thing. Just to point out, uh, artificial, artificially produced compounds can actually be more pure it, yes. and safe than naturally produced ones due to, uh, you know, when you've got biological organisms creating stuff for you, they, they're organisms and their stuff can vary. Right. When you're doing it in a lab, you have the opportunity to really isolate it out. This is true. Either way. Um, meanwhile, in 1908, a Japanese chemist unlocked an easy way to convey savory flavor through food. Monosodium glutamate, MSG. <gasps> Akita Kikune isolated MSG as the compound in sea kelp that gives an extra depth of flavor to kombudashi broth and coined the term umami to describe it, derived from a colloquial word for tasty. Ah. So yes, umami is a 19-aughts marketing term. <laughs> anyway, uh, MSG went on the market in 1909 as a food supplement that could make bland but nutritious food more appealing. Now, that was the hope. Anyway, after aggressive educational marketing, it really caught on with upper-middle-class housewives and spread to Taiwan, China, and the United States over the next couple decades as an inexpensive and vegetarian alternative to using pricey animal products in cooking. Uh, although it was a household product in Asia, and it was mostly an industrial and restaurant ingredient over here in the States. Right. More on that later. Mm-hmm. Sometime around 1910, a fellow who worked out, uh, he worked out, he worked with the flavor <laughs> extracts for soda, passed a woman whose perfume was a dead ringer for Concord grapes. Oh. He was able to track down the chemical behind the fragrance, and he discovered they were already using it in Germany and Austria as orange blossom essence. Huh. That's because they had a different type of grape than the Concord with a different flavor and smell. Interestingly, this was a long time before scientists actually knew that this was a flavor chemical in grapes. Huh. Yeah. And some flavors are easier to figure out than others. One that is apparently notoriously difficult is coffee. In the 1920s, Dutch chemists isolated a compound called diacetyl that imparted a buttery flavor to foods. It's produced naturally by the lactic acid bacteria at work in some alcohols like Chardonnay and also in cultured butter. Makes sense. As industrialization gripped the dairy industry, creameries started using this artificial diacetyl to standardize their butter or to cut corners by skipping the culturation step entirely. More on that in our butter episode. And our popcorn episode. Oh, right. Yeah. All the throwbacks. Also in the 1920s, chemists at the USDA tried to nail down artificial apple flavor mm. from a ton of apples, not like an actual ton. Uh, they were only able to extract less than two grams of usable stuff. Oh, wow. And from there, they isolated five chemicals, um, which you can find it was part of the public domain since it was... Uh, government research. Ah. Flavor science is complicated. Most flavor compounds held by companies are proprietary. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the best examples of these secret flavorings was peach, first perfected in the Cincinnati area by a firm called Fries and Fries. Everyone was trying to figure out their secret, uh, and the cat came out of the bag when a flavor chemist learned that they discovered one of the compounds accidentally after a mishap in castor oil production resulted in the entire factory smelling like peaches. <laughs> I mean, of the things that could happen after an oh, accident, wow. that's pretty good. Yeah, that's the best possible mistake. <laughs> yeah. And um, another chemical component in their peach flavoring was discovered after somebody left a piece of cheese soaked in alcohol down in the basement next to the furnace. <laughs> Whether on purpose or by accident, the article did not specify. Huh. I bet somebody just left his cheese down there. Oh, yeah. Just accidentally dropped a piece of cheese in their <laughs> Why glass of beer. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, no one. The world this may is, never know. We'll never know. <laughs> Another weird fact that I love. Um, people seem to think that red drinks are sweeter than non-red drinks. Oh. In taste tests, regardless of whether or not they actually are, just because we associate red with certain flavors. Um, oh, and unless soda is purple, most folks can't tell you after tasting it that it's grape flavored. They need that purple. They need the purple indicator. They don't recognize the flavor without the color. Yeah, th this is one of those things. That there's a difference between flavor and, and taste. Taste is the literal thing that's happening with your taste buds, and flavor is all that other stuff. Yeah, sight, sound, etc. Yeah, uh, 
So at this point in our timeline, uh, the the industry is actually about to get a lot easier to work in due to a technological innovation, which we will talk about when we get back from one last break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So... The entire flavor industry would get a serious boost when chromatography technology advanced in the 1940s and 50s. The first gas chromatographs were produced commercially later that decade. Scientists going back to the beginning of the 20th century had been investigating ways to separate out and identify compounds that make up various substances. And it turns out that if you heat a sample of something to the point that it vaporizes and then pass that vapor through a column of liquid— All the chemical components from the sample will interact with the liquid and the sides of this column slightly differently because of their inherent molecular properties. Uh, Sort of like like runners of different speeds, these chemicals will separate themselves out from one another as they flow through this chamber. And then you can use a chemical detector of one kind or another to figure out what each of those compounds is. So suddenly, uh, chemists had a relatively inexpensive way to, like, automatically detect chemicals from stuff. You didn't need, like, tremendous training to use this machine. You could start identifying the compounds and products that may or may not give them their flavor. May or may not. May or may not. Doors are opening. They are. And as mass production of food and nationalization of products took off, so did the need to add back in flavor that was lost in mass production ah. and to have a product with um, a, cons- a consistent flavor across the country and even around the world. More and more foods were processed and therefore 
more and more foods were artificially flavored. The first flavored potato chips from Irish company Tato came out in the 1950s with salt and vinegar and cheese and onion varieties. On U.S. grocery shelves, you'd find barbecue or sour cream and onion. This was the time that grocery stores were really taking off, and so many products were competing to end up in the American shopper's cart. Having a memorable flavor was a big part of that. In 1947, a VP at General Mills, uh uh-huh, yeah, that General Mills, Hmm. said that flavors should serve, quote, as a built-in trademark which will invariably be identified with its brand name and its producer. In the 1950s, the slogan of a popular um, fragrance and flavor brand was, nothing sells like flavor, and that it was the silent salesman. Oh. I know. The Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act got a makeover in 1958. That's when the list of generally recognized as safe, G-R-A-S, was introduced in the U.S., and it meant that manufacturers, if they wanted to be on that list, had to prove they were worthy of the designation. It made things easier for the FDA um, and for companies wanting to use the ingredients on the list, including those in the artificial flavoring category. Aha, but... Artificial flavors were not immune to the same health concerns that impacted artificial sweeteners. Ah. In 1953, a compound that had been used as part of artificial sweeteners and vanilla, called Kumarin, was taken off the market voluntarily by companies after a study came out linking it to liver damage in rats. A flavoring in root beer called Safrol was removed this way, too, in 1958. That same year... The food additives amendment passed, but as it happened, the FDA bit off a bit more than it could chew. Mm -hmm. There were more than a thousand chemicals in these additives for them to test. A lot of them were present in really small amounts. Yeah. So the FDA raised his hands and was like, okie dokie, we'll just take you at your word (laughs) for most of these. They allowed the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association to decide what should be tested And as you can imagine, they were pretty lax about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. This is still the arrangement today. And as of 2015, there were over 3,000 chemical additives on the generally recognized as safe list. Although in 1968 and 69, controversy over the safety of artificial sweeteners, saccharin and cyclamate prompted President Nixon to order an FDA review of all the additives on its GRAS list. Amidst all of this, in 1968, a Chinese-American doctor wrote a speculative letter for the New England Journal of Medicine, a sort of thinking-out-loud piece about effects that he had anecdotally noticed after eating at Chinese restaurants, including stuff like heart palpitations. And the journal labeled this Chinese restaurant syndrome. Oh. Although the doctor brought up a whole list of possible culprits, from like tea to, to wine to duck sauce to imported mushrooms— the press latched on to the item on the list that was an unnatural additive, MSG. Yeah. There was no conclusive research about its effects, but the press and the public rallied against it. And some factions in Japan picked up the battle cry. One writer who was promoting, in general, a return to natural foods went as far as saying... The frightening thing about processed foods made by large corporations, in addition to the toxicity of the large quantities of food additives used, is that they cause the spiritual ruin of Japanese women. What? His, his idea here was that cooking healthy meals for your family is a form of prayer and a road to internal peace. And yeah, apparently additives like MSG can just ruin that. Had no idea. We talked a little bit about MSG in our episode on ramen, but uh, to reiterate here, uh, research published in 2006 that reviewed almost 40 years' worth of research studies uh, found no serious side effects or sensitivities in humans at large to the amount of MSG that you could possibly consume through food. Like maybe headache or dry mouth if you're eating on an empty stomach and you're not properly, properly hydrated, but the... The, the only really bad effects that any researchers ever found about MSG were when they injected it into mice. <laughs> don't, don't inject yourself with MSG. Food stuff. Another great piece <laughs> of advice from food stuff. <laughs> we're here to help. We are. Oh, we, we'll have to do a whole episode, though, sometime on MSG. It's, it's a really fascinating story. It's one of those terrific corporate 
efforts that uh, that took off extremely well and had some dips. And yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm excited to to return to that. Mm-hmm. The diet foods that um, really started to take off in the 60s and 70s necessitated a lot of artificial flavoring so that it didn't taste so dull, so boring. In the words of this ad, providing taste appeal for foods lacking either sugar or salt, and sometimes both, is an extremely difficult problem, and flavor differences in some degree are inevitable. However, the flavor chemist can, by diligent research, provide an acceptable flavor of such foods. I like acceptable. Yeah. That's such a low bar. It's kind of true, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Some things I read suggested companies designed artificial flavors to lack an aftertaste, which encouraged you to eat more of their product. And I don't know how true that is. I didn't have time to, like, dig into it. But I have heard similar things recently. So thought I'd mention it. Another thing we have to come back to. Yeah. This episode is full of, like, this path, this path, this path. Oh, yeah. It's a mm-hmm. choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah. Um, in the 1970s, the chemical synthesis of vanillin pushed ahead with new ways to chim- cheaply, not chimply, cheaply synthesize <laughs> vanillin from uh, various chemical precursors, including guaiacol, which is a byproduct of the petroleum industry, and lignin, which is a byproduct of the wood and paper industries. Uh, these these methods of production of synthesis are, are cheap, but they're not always great environmentally speaking. Um, you've got to use some hazardous solvents and other chemicals to produce and purify your vanillin. For lignin, for example, every kilo of vanillin that you make creates 160 kilos of waste that you have to figure out how to safely dispose of. And uh, products that use these synthesized vanillins have to be labeled artificial, which consumers don't always like. Those finicky consumers. Yeah. Of course, we should say natural flavors can also take an environmental toll. Uh, Agriculture uses tremendous amounts of resources and can use harmful chemicals, too. Um, That's why traditionally artificial flavors have been so much cheaper than natural flavors. Until in 2009, researchers were able to make a type of yeast that makes vanilla-flavored bacteria poop. (laughs) After feasting on sugar, it excretes vanillin. This means they can technically label it as natural. This natural vanillin went on sale in the U.S. in 2014, but not without controversy, especially from the anti-GMO crowd. Other obligatory note, uh, there's no reason to distrust genetically modified foods and food products as a whole. It's actually a super impressive feat to get yeast and bacteria to create vanillin. Plants make it as an antimicrobial. Its oh. whole job in plants is to not be, is to kill bacteria. So it tends to be toxic to microbes. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of bacteria and yeast being genetically modified and, and farmed to produce natural flavors these days. Yes. And their next goal is, I bet you can guess, engineer a natural calorie-free sugar. Oh. Yeah. And they have a lot of funding behind them to succeed. Yeah. Um, And here... Yeah, this finally brings us to the most important question. Yes. What the heck is blue raspberry? What is it? Why? (laughs) Why is it blue? I don't know. Actually, I do. Okay. This is the thing that, (laughs) like, I really wanted to know in this whole episode. (laughs) Okay. The answer takes us back to the summers of the early 1970s. I remember them not at all. Oh, me either, me either. But I can imagine, on these hot summer days, kids were reaching for a cool treat in the form of flavor ice pops or otter pops. And yep, those are the clear tubes of icy sugar that have probably been in your freezer since you've owned one. You don't know how they got there? They're there, though. Yeah, we've got some in our freezer. I have no idea. Do we really? Yeah. <laughs> uh. um, the problem with these ice pops is that they were limited to four flavors at the time, cherry, strawberry, watermelon, and raspberry, all of which are shades of red. And it made it kind of hard to differentiate between flavors. Hard, but doable. Until the FDA came out with research suggesting red number two, the dye responsible for the red color, was very bad for your health. So these popsicle companies switched it up Um, using different dyes to get the shades of red and pink, but these new dyes were either more expensive and or possibly worse for you health-wise. The popsicles, or I guess I should say pops, ice pops, companies (laughs) set their eyes on an alternative. 
At the time, the blue raspberry flavored icy, uh, <laughs> you know those frozenated fun things, right? That's their saying. I didn't come up with that. Frozenated? Frozenated fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. You get them a like it's a movie. slurpee. Yeah. Yeah. Movie theaters or gas stations. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, they had been out on the scene since 1970. It was basically a raspberry-flavored icy but dyed blue with FD&C number one instead of red with red number two. Ah. And actually, the flavor behind blue raspberry is more similar to blackberry, something called white bark raspberry. Still, though, that berry isn't blue. <laughs> um, it's a reddish-purple, and it does take on a bluish hue when ripe, but it's definitely not Blue raspberry blue. <laughs> White bark raspberry flavor plus FD&C blue number one equals blue raspberry. Huh. The color was chosen in part because children are drawn to bright colors. Um, as observed in the case of lemonade versus pink lemonade sales. Apparently pink lemonade way outsells lemonade. Um, once the popsicle companies started selling pops of this flavor, it became a regular. One of the greatest mysteries of life. Solved. Oh, and by the way, 132 million 16-ounce blue raspberry ices are consumed every year in the U.S. Oh, yeah. That's a lot. Um, <coughs> We've shocked her speechless. <laughs> she had to sit back in her chair. I'm going to have to take a break after that one. <laughs> oh, all right. Coming back. Coming back. In the early 2000s, consumers kind of, kind of took up this red dye number two rally again um, yeah. and started pushing back against artificial ingredients um, based on those 1970s studies and a couple other newer ones that were linking um, artificial colors and preservatives to hyperactive behavior in children. And if you'll remember, this was when ADD and ADHD were the huge concerns. Everyone was, you know, like, is my, does my child have this affliction? Mm -hmm. How will they survive? Not that it's not a big concern. It certainly is. And it's a, anyway, um, huge corporations took notice of this and began research to replace these artificial ingredients to retain their marketability. And Nestle Company made the trend official in 2012 when they announced that they would be removing and replacing all artificial color, flavors, and preservatives in their entire line of confections. In the UK, that is. Mm -hmm. uh, Nestle USA would make the same announcement a couple years later. The movement just hooked up with the whole, like, organic, whole foods, health blog kind of trend and snowballed. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that in our cheddar episode of macaroni and cheese getting rid of it. And so many um, companies now are trying to get rid of yeah. dyes. And, and, and again, it's not... <laughs> Unfortunately, like like more research needs to be done to see whether or not these things are actually harmful. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I guess it's driving our important chemists industry. Yeah, those uh, flavorists, hardworking out there. Yeah. You've got your work cut out for you. You do. This episode has so many, so many things I want to look into more, <laughs> and including this. I read a company in London is trying to bring. Three-course dinner chewing gum from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to life, obviously with the help of artificial flavoring, ah! future fictional foods. Oh, my God. Why haven't we thought about a Willy Wonka episode yet? Okay, yes. I know. I'm very I excited. added it to the list, and then oh. I thought of Duff Beer from The Simpsons, and I added that to the list, too. Our list is ever-growing. Excellent. Yes. Huh. But this brings us to the end of um, artificial flavoring with a little note that there's many things we must return to. Yes. I'm particularly interested in color, the association with color and food. I yeah. thought that was so fascinating. Color psychology is always really great to look into. Yes. Fun. And that brings us to the end of this classic episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, and also, if you're doing any, I was just thinking about this today because I my baking project of the holidays is usually... I was trying to think of when I use artificial flavors. It's usually uh, gingerbread cookies, and I'll do all, like, icing and dyes and candies and uh -huh. sprinkles. Yeah, so it's yeah. not as much artificial flavoring. So I was just trying to think of things. But you listeners, we always love to hear about whatever baking or cooking projects you are embarking on. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I'm sure that y'all are getting up to some, um, some really spectacular ones. Um, we are also pulling together... The um the mail for the last listener mail of 2021. I know. Yes. 
Yes. So so yeah. So now is now is the time if uh, if you have something to send to us. Yes, for our ninth <laughs> listener mail episode of which. I'm already workshopping the titles, but you probably know what will be what it will be. <laughs> um, yes, please, please, please send us your notes and letters. You can email us at hello at saverpod.com. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.